Thank you, Mary. Appreciate appreciate music like that. We appreciate it and appreciate you being here. We're thankful for you being here this morning and this Mother's Day, a day in which we honor moms, and we're going to do that today. We got some roses out there in the back, and we want uh, every mother to have one, and we want every woman here or female or girl who's ever been known a mother's love to have one also. So that just means all the females, you get a flower today. That's all that means. And I was instructed by my wife to be careful how I said that. Every So that's every mother and every girl who has known a mother's love. So that just takes all of men. So we want you to have one. And uh, I think they're going to She's going to come in and have um, maybe uh, Charity, or uh, no, Charity's daughter, Sarah. Maybe they're going to come in, I think, maybe help hand them out. So anyway, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. And then uh, if there's any left, and I think there looks like there will be, then I'm going to take a flower by to Diane this afternoon and to Wanda, and we'll pay them a visit, make sure they get a flower as well. So Anyway, that'll hopefully make for a good Mother's Day. I hope you have something big planned after church for lunch or something like that for Mother's Day. Now, we have a we have, we have a really big doings. You know, it's really, you, you want to go out to eat, but it's so hard to get into a restaurant, so we go to the mall. Every, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that was the goal, just to keep praying. <laughs> That is, a, that is a goal. I really did. Uh, but you know, in the past, you know how I've always said that and it didn't work. So I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I really am. That's, that's, I set a goal this morning. So, and it's, look at this. That's all there is right there. That's it. So we're going to see what, we'll just see what happens here and maybe we'll get it done. But we want to rush off to the mall. That's where we go to for celebrate Father's, Mother's Day and Father's Day because it's easy to get in that way. And everybody gets to pick what they want and everybody's happy. So that's, we've done that for several years. Many years, I guess I should say. Okay. <coughs> Turn with me to Genesis chapter 41. And, um, of course, there are, I think, and actually, in all the time I've been here, this might be the first time I've actually preached on mothers. And so it's going to be a, a simple message. There's so many mothers in the Bible and so much you could say about them. There were some good mothers, a lot of them, some pretty bad ones, too. Uh, but we're going to talk about a couple interesting ones, I guess, you'd say, this morning. In Genesis chapter 41... And if you look at verse 45, it says there, And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paniah, and he gave him to wife Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, 
and laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Azanoth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, in this account, of course, Joseph in the land of Egypt, and we saw there that uh, he was given a wife, Azanath, and, of course, she being an Egyptian, a pagan. And that, that name, Azanath, means she belongs to, and I don't know if I can say it with justice, N-E-I-T-H, Neith, which was a Egyptian goddess. Her father, it says there, was the priest of On. Of course, that meant he was a pagan priest, an idol worshiper. And yet, apparently, because of Pharaoh's desire to Egyptianize, as it were, Joseph, he gives her a... It gives him a wife, and of course he changes uh, Joseph's name to an Egyptian name, of which nobody knows what it means. It's hard enough to say as it is, let alone know what it means. But here he was, and of course having been all that he had been through up to this point, uh, in prison and so on, and, and now in this exalted position, And having taken a wife that was not of his Hebrew heritage, nor of his Hebrew faith. But yet we see in very simple terms here how that though he had a wife who was fully, and you would think obviously here, fully instructed in pagan idolatry and worship, Yet we see in the end, Joseph did not lose his faith. This goddess, Neith, whom she, and, and, and her name means she belongs to Neith, or, um, well, it has several other implications too. One of those being that she was a woman who, was depicted as a, a goddess of war and also as one who wore and had this red crown, this red crown of lower Egypt. Now, what all that implied, I don't know, except that it meant many things to them because she was also a weaver. And you'll see in, in the pictures or in recovered archaeological artifacts like little statuettes and so on of this goddess. You know, she uh, has this crown. It's a woven thing. And she has these arrows that are crossed, you know, depicting uh, war and so on. And uh, 
the, the other thing is this, um, she was also known as the mother of the sun god, which was Ra, R-A, Ra the sun god. And uh, so she was quite the character. And so Joseph's wife, Azanath, meaning she belongs to this goddess, was obviously closely connected then to this pagan religion, pagan the, uh, teachings and idolatry. And yet, we find over here in verse uh, of this same chapter, over here in verse 50, unto Joseph was born two sons, one being Manasseh, of course, and the other Ephraim. Manasseh, which means one who causes to forget. And you can imagine the very first son that Joseph had born to him was one that helped him forget his toil and trouble and misery and affliction in Egypt. He didn't consider Egypt his home. It was just a place that God had put him for the time being. Then he gave him a second son, being Ephraim. And he says there regarding Ephraim, he says, For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction or in the land of my misery and trouble. And that word Ephraim, it has a dual, a duality about it. It means doubly fruitful. And of course, he, had, he was the second son. So even here in the midst of this, God blessed him even through a pagan mother. And even though being reared by a pagan mother, these two young sons adopted the faith of their father, Joseph, because eventually, you know, they went back to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And in doing so, you might remember also, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 50, just a few pages over to the right, <coughs> in chapter 50 in verse, uh, verses 22, 23, 24, it says there, Regarding Joseph, it says, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived an hundred and ten years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up on, upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of the land unto the land which he sware to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so, in verse 25, Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. And so Joseph died. And Joseph rested in that promise of what God had said he would do regarding the land, and that he would bring them up out of Egypt, and he requested specifically that they bring his bones. And, of course, Ephraim and Manasseh were among that party that left Egypt, but we don't hear about Azanath leaving Egypt. Evidently, she stayed. Evidently, her bones were buried in Egypt. And so we're left there with a, a picture that here was a mother who God just simply used to bear children to fulfill something in the life of Joseph. One, 
was for evidently for bound up in the names that he gave the children to help him forget about the affliction that he had gone through in the land of Egypt and knowing that he was going to die there in that land and then also giving him a second son, Ephraim, and being doubly fruitful. Now, if you'll turn over to 1 Samuel in chapter 1, and we have this very familiar story <coughs> of one Hannah and Elkanah and another mother by the name of Peninnah. And, of course, this all has to do with the birth of a son, Samuel, and we find in this uh, interesting chapter here, chapters 1 and 2 actually, regarding her, that even bound up in her name, God blessed her, for Hannah means favored, or as we would say it in the New Testament, grace. And we often look upon that word and we give a definition of it as being unmerited favor. And that was what God has shown here to Hannah in the midst of also affliction. If you look at, uh, well, let's just read a few verses there. In chapter 1, verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the other's name was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So Peninnah was a mother. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So we have priests involved here as well. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion. And that phrase, a worthy portion, is literally a double portion. In the same manner in which God blessed Joseph with two sons, meaning an Ephraim, meaning doubly fruitful, here God blesses Hannah through her husband, Elkanah, in giving her a double portion over the wife, Peninnah, who bore children, and yet Hannah being barren. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And so, and then, of course, in, ver, in the next verse, in verse 6, her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Twice he tells us that. And so we find that she was in affliction also. As a matter of fact, she was in such affliction that this word fret other places is translated thunder. In other words, when Peninnah was provoking her, she was pretty highly irritated about the whole affair because she had no children. So much so, 
It says at the end of verse 7 that she wept and did not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thine heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Now, you'd almost think he didn't know what was going on with Penina, you know. Uh, Why are you so grieved? But then he says, am I not better to thee than ten sons? Now, if you know anything about the culture of the Israelites, you know that every Israelitish woman wanted a son. Even with the idea and view that this one might be the promised Messiah. And yet he's telling her, am I not better to you than ten sons? A woman with ten sons would be mighty highly favored and blessed. So Elkanah must have been quite the guy. And I'd like to know a little bit more about that. I think I could learn a little bit from Elkanah. So we see it goes on. Hannah went down to to the temple to pray which, by the way, was a tabernacle at this point in time, not not the erected temple. But notice in verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me. You know, that's such a simple prayer. Lord, remember me. But if you look down in verse 19... It says there, regarding Elkanah and Hannah, having gone down to the tabernacle to worship, they rose up in the morning early and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. What a simple prayer and what a simple answer to prayer. Lord, remember me, and the Lord remembered her. He provided for her. And in response to that provision, of course, she made full dedication of Samuel to the Lord. The King James Version uses the expression, she lent him to the Lord. And if you look over at chapter 2, we find the response of Hannah the expression of her heart over the joy of this son that she had been given. She prayed in verse 1, My heart rejoices in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Now, it's important for us to understand the salvation that Hannah's talking about here because Every Israelite was looking forward to the coming Messiah. And in their mind, the coming of the Messiah meant the putting away of Israel's enemies, a complete overhaul, as it were, or a restoration of the nation of Israel to the point where God's rule would bring blessing upon that nation and peace. And righteousness under the mighty hand of God and his Messiah. And so when she was rejoicing in that salvation, she was rejoicing in the promise that those who look for that coming Messiah would experience that 
prosperity. They would experience that peace. And they would know that righteousness that would prevail upon the earth when the Lord's Messiah would come to rule the earth. And, of course, bound up in that word then, salvation, also meant they held out the hope of resurrection. Because they knew, well, there had been many generations had passed since Hannah came on the scene. And those who were of like faith held out the hope that there would one day be a resurrection in which they would come then to participate in that, that uh, promised peace that the Messiah would bring. And in, in, involved in that then, in verse 8, is this, where she says, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. Now, I don't know about you, but in my Bible, I have those lofty things underlined. To set them among princes, that is to make them rulers, to put them in positions of authority, and then also to make them inherit the throne of glory. But you know, before that actually happens... Where are we? We're like a beggar, he says, from the dunghill on a pile of manure. We're in a very lowly place. Matter of fact, he, he picks us out of the dust, he says. He raises up the poor out of the dust. This was a picture from the heart of Hannah of her present condition and her present place as she looked by faith to that which was yet to come. And she saw God, the Lord, as one who was able to lift them up from these lowly places and to set them in these lofty arenas of rulership and glory. The place of glory was the place of honor and the place of privilege. He said, she, she said in verse 9, He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. I wouldn't mind stopping for a while to go somewhere with that phrase, they shall be silent in darkness, but I shall move on. Verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is, his Messiah. And that's, by the way, is the first time we have the word Messiah mentioned in the scriptures. Now, turn over to Second Chronicles. And chapter 29, 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And verse 1 says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty-five years old, and he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abiyah, 
the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. It wasn't according to all that his his father had done, Hezekiah's father, but all according to his father David. That is, that one pointing back who operated in faith and in believing God because Hezekiah's father was just the opposite. He was one of the wickedest kings that Israel ever knew in Ahaz. As a matter of fact, if you look in my Bible, I can look just up just a little bit back to chapter 28 and verse 24 where it says, Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. That is, altars for pagan idols. Hezekiah did not have much by the in way of a family heritage with respect to his father. And it makes you wonder, well, where did he get his instruction? How did he maintain a good road here? How did it turn out that he was a man of faith and brought about such reforms and a, a turning of Israel back to the Lord following upon his father Ahaz? And you have to wonder here about his mother, Abiyah. The interesting thing about that name is it means father of Yah. Or, and Yah is just an abbreviated way of saying Yahweh, father of God. Or a deeper implication of that word would just mean a worshiper of God. And so, just in the simplicity of this little name, one would infer, and that's what I'm doing, inferring here, that she was a loyal mother who taught her son and brought him up in the faith. The faith that held to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then one more I want to look at. In Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> verses and passages we often look at at Christmas time because of uh, dealing with the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to look at a passage here and just, just look at a few phrases here out of this passage regarding... Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, it says in verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, was upon him. In waiting for the consolation of Israel, that's nothing more than an expression, meaning he was also waiting on the Messiah of Israel. Just like Joseph was, just like Hannah was, just like Abiyah was, so Simeon, waiting for the consolation, the Messiah of Israel. 
And in verse 26, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy slave depart in peace according to thy word. You know, it's, there's not a word said there about how he recognized that this little baby, all wrapped up and well, bundled up, how he would recognize that this one was the Messiah of Israel. But God revealed it to him, it says in verse 26, that he would see him. He says, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Now, again, when we see that word salvation here, when you think about an Old Testament Jew, because we're still thinking Old Testament here, in his mind, he is looking for the consolation, the Messiah of Israel, and he says, I have seen thy salvation. And so in context there, that salvation still refers to the promise that God had given regarding what he was going to give Israel. Peace, a righteous rule, a wiping out, a cleansing out of all the enemies of God, not only of the nations around, but as we saw back there with Hannah, a purging or a cleansing of his kingdom and all those that would be cast out into darkness. Removed from that kingdom, in other words, the kingdom of light. And so then he goes on in verse 32, he says, He is a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So it wasn't just for Israel here. Simeon understood all those various prophecies that had been given through the prophets of Israel regarding not only that which was to come for Israel, but also that which was to come for the Gentiles as well. And so then he says in verse 33, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken by him. And Simeon blessed them, that is Joseph and his mother, Jesus' mother. But he said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, when he says there, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, that word is the word for resurrection or a rising up, a standing up of many in Israel. And so what all I'm trying to say here is that involved with several mothers in this whole promise of what is yet to come, there were mothers of various sorts, but the same faith held true, whether it was the husband, the mother, the son, 
the daughter, whatever the situation was, they held true to the faith that God had given in his promise that there would be a land for Israel, that he would bring in Gentiles under this grace that he had been promising to Israel as well. And now, here he is. He has arrived. He's now on the scene. And he will soon then present himself to the nation. And of course, as we all know then, rejected. Turned away. Just like he is today. Man, if you just watch the news of anything at all about Christianity in the public arena and Christians are being assailed on the right and on the left like never before. And we're going to see more of it as time goes on. And so I see in all this the necessity that we hold to and cling to the faith of people like Hannah, of mothers like Abiyah, and of those like Mary. But Mary didn't say an awful lot about it. The scripture just tells us she pondered all these things in her heart. But what I want to emphasize this morning as we close is just the very simple thought that many, many times, and we could find more examples in Scripture, that it was mother who held the faith. It was mother who prayed for things to happen, like Hannah, who got a son, and the Lord remembered her. So when we pray, let's pray with that same kind of faith and look forward. Don't look now for me, and Lord, I need something for me right now, but pray with an eye's view towards that which was to come. Sure, Hannah wanted a son. And she wanted that son now. But as you look at that prayer she prayed and praising the Lord, we saw that she was looking ahead to what he had promised in his coming Messiah. And we need to do the same to keep our faith focused because our faith will indeed be assaulted and assailed. And can I say it this way? In a few short days, very soon, it's just coming, coming, and, and I'm so afraid that we're going to be caught unawares or we won't know what happened. And when our faith then is put to the test, the question is, is will it stand in that day? Will it bear up? Let us have the, the faith of these mothers we've mentioned here today. Dear Lord, we thank you for the privilege, for the honor, the blessing of knowing your Messiah, of being called a Christian, 
of belonging to the way, of walking the narrow path, and of seeking to enter that straight gate. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to do so with diligence and with fervency as you've instructed us to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.